Hey everyone, and welcome to Theana Money, where we seek to help the good man leave an inheritance to his children's children. This is Jeremy Collins, the host of Theana Money. So this week on the podcast, I, like I said last week, was going to drop this episode last week, but that whole thing happened with Dave Ramsey. Go back, check out last week's episode. It had to deal with Christians and raising rent if one is a Christian landlord. So this week, instead, we are dropping the episode that I intend on dropping last week. It is from a sermon I preached several months ago about the spheres of sovereignty. We talk about those a ton on this podcast. I've covered them in some short detail before. So here is a full length much longer than normal episode going into detail on those. So this is one I hope to point people to for a long time to come on just a good way to help someone understand the spheres of sovereignty. So like I said, this was from a sermon on this topic that I preached at my church several months ago. I hope you all enjoy it. So today we're going to be talking about what the Bible has to say about government, but not just what the Bible has to say about what we normally think of when we hear the word government, but the Bible actually talks about three different types of government. It talks about the family as one type of government, the church as another, and then the state as the final one. So when I use the word government, I'm referring to just a more the biblical idea of government as in some sort of like order, family, church, or state. When I use the word state is when I'm referring to what we typically think of when we hear the term government. So before we uh, get into that, well, first let's pray and then we will get into that a little bit more. God, thank you for today. Thank you for how you have blessed us. Help us to honor you with our time, to love you and to serve you. Thank you for bringing us here safely today. Help uh, your word to be preached accurately. Help me to teach properly what you have defined as the roles of the various forms of government and um, help this all to be done to your glory. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, the three forms of government that the Bible talks about, it's called the spheres of authority. This actually comes from a guy named Abraham Kuyper, who was the prime minister of, uh, I think, the Netherlands like over 100 years ago, he was the one that came up with that term, the spheres of sovereignty, to refer to the family, the church, and the state, the three different forms of government that God has prescribed. But before we dive into that, I want to talk about kind of the basis of this. So when it comes to authority, because each of these different, of the three spheres, each of these different forms of government, they each have authority. So first, I want to start with how all authority first and foremost, belongs to God. We're going to look at a few passages for that. There's all kinds of ones I could have gone with, but the first is the last three verses of Matthew when Jesus gives the Great Commission. So Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, Jesus says, and oh, it says, and Jesus came up and spoke to them, the disciples, saying, all authority, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all that I commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So when people quote the Great Commission, if they just quote verses 19 and 20, and they don't quote verse 18, they're actually missing part of it. Because Jesus in verse 19 says, go therefore, and he's saying therefore, referring back to verse 18, when he says, he has all authority in heaven and on earth. So first, that's one verse to look at to show that Jesus has all authority. Then the next one is in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 14. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 14 says, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heaven, the earth and all that is in it. And that's not the only passage in the Bible that says that. There's probably a dozen verses all throughout the Psalms that say almost the exact same thing I could have quoted from there. Hey, I was going through this taking out some of the ums and uhs and stuff like that, making sure it still sounds good, and realize I accidentally said Deuteronomy 41.11 here because I just quoted from Deuteronomy. I accidentally said the book I just quoted from. It is Job 41.11. So thanks for listening and keep going. Deuteronomy 41.11 is when God is talking to Job and God says, Who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. And then lastly, from Psalm 2, so from the passage that I opened by reading, we see in verses 8 and 9 of Psalm 2, it says, Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. And this is God the Father speaking to God the Son here. And the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and you shall shatter them like a potter's vessel. So that's saying that the nations are Jesus' inheritance, and that the ends of the earth are his possession. All of that, first and foremost, to say that all authority belongs to God. God is the sovereign. Everything ultimately belongs to God. Yes, you own the house you live in. You own the property you live on. But ultimately, it all belongs to God. But then God also delegates his authority to his creation. God gives some of his authority over the various things to the people he made in his image, which are men and women. That's why we are able to do things like own property because we recognize that we are just subtenants of that property, that we are stewards of it. We own it, but we own it under God. It is a delegated authority. Like if your manager delegates something to you that he needed to do, but he has something else he has to do, he delegates to you that thing to do. So we're going to look at a few passages of God delegating authority to humans. The first is Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 through 30, and that says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed it shall be food for you and to every beast of the earth and to the every bird of the sky and to everything that moves on the earth which has life i have given every green plant for food and it was so so that's one that is god giving authority giving dominion over the earth to adam and eve 
and thus to all of their descendants after them, which all the descendants of Adam and Eve are all humans that are alive right now or have been alive in the past because we're all children of Adam and Eve. But then that's not the only time where we see authority being given to humans by God. Another one is John chapter 19, verses 10 through 11. Uh, So this is when Pilate and Jesus are talking, when Jesus is about to be crucified. It reads, So Pilate said to him, You do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you, and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. So Jesus says to Pilate that you have no authority over me except what was given to you by God. And then one last verse to look at on God delegating authority to mankind is in Romans, a little bit further ahead in Romans than where we are right now. Because when we pick back up in Romans here soon, we'll be in chapter 7, and this is from chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, the first verse says, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist have been appointed by God. And so that previous point, that last verse that I just read there out of those verses, has to do specifically with God delegating authority to human governments, to what I'm referring to as the state or the civil magistrate in this sermon. So... All all of that is kind of still getting into the intro, just getting into the fact that God has all authority, but he delegates authority to his creation, and therefore God throughout scripture has established these three forms of government, the family, the church, and the state. And so what I just read in Romans 13 verse 1, it doesn't mean that the government has unlimited authority, that the government can just do whatever it wants, because the government only has authority that God has given it, just like the family only has the authority God has given it, and the church only has authority that God has given it. God has given specific and limited authority to each of the three spheres, each of these three forms of government. And so the government, for example, is the minister of the sword, as Paul says later on in Romans 13, and we'll get to that in a bit. It's the minister of the sword to bring wrath on the evildoer, just like the church is the minister of mercy, because the church is the one preaching the gospel. The church is the one baptizing and providing communion to Christians and things like that. Uh, So it is actually chapter 13, verse 4 that says that. Chapter 13, verse 4 says, For it, the state, the government, the civil magistrate, for it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword in vain, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. So when we're going to look through these various forms of government one at a time, and when we get to the state, the last one we'll look at, we'll come back to Romans chapter 13. And then another point with all of this is that God's word also talks about any of these forms of government, family, church, or state, become oppressive if they take too much authority for themselves. If they start acting outside of what God has uh, told them is their roles. We see this in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 10 through 18. So I'm going to flip there. It's, uh, you don't have to flip there with me unless you want to. It's 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 10 through 18. It says, this is when Israel is demanding a king. They don't want to be under the judges anymore, as they had been for the previous 400 years. They want a king. And Samuel tells them, 
all the reasons why they, don't want, they shouldn't want a king over themselves. They should recognize God as their only king. And so it says, So Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who had asked of him a king. He said, This will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots and among his horsemen, and they will run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and of fifties, and some to do his plowing and to reap his harvest and to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will also take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give them to his officers and to his servants. He will also take your male servants and your female servants and your best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his servants. Then you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. So Samuel there is telling Israel how oppressive it will be if they allow a king for themselves and the king starts taking too much power, giving them a warning of what any of these spheres of authority, in this case specifically the state, looks like if it takes too much power for itself. So we're going to start looking at each of these three spheres, but actually we're going to start by looking at a fourth one. So I've already said the three spheres of sovereignty, the three types of government God has established are the family, the church, and the state. But there's a really a fourth one. The fourth one is self. The fourth one is you um, having discipline over yourself. So that's the first one we're going to look at. Then we'll look at the family, then the church, then if we have enough time to stay. Otherwise, I'll have to continue this into a part two. And then we'll wrap up and close. So first is self-government. This is, as the name implies, being disciplined, having government over yourself. Uh, some Bible verses that talk about people having to be responsible are Proverbs 9.12. Proverbs 9.12 says, If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. And if you scoff, you alone will bear it. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 says, Brothers, even if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each of you looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Or Ezekiel chapter 18 verse 20 reads, The person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. So those verses that show that people bear the blessing or the punishment. They bear the responsibility for their own actions. So people have a responsibility to discipline themselves, to take responsibility for themselves. And then when it comes to if any of the three spheres of authority, family, church, or state, if any of them are exercising power that was not given to them by God, going outside of their spheres of authority, in other words, if any of them is being a tyrant or being oppressive, then we must first defeat the tyrant of our own self and disciplining ourselves before we can fight any tyrants in any of the other three spheres of authority. If you can't kill your lying problem, then how will you combat someone in authority over you who's constantly lying to you? If you can't kill your porn problem, how can you fight when, how can you combat someone in authority 
who themselves has no issue with self-control, when you yourself have no issue, or no, no, you yourself are struggling with self-control. If you can't kill your laziness problem, then how will you actually get around to doing what needs to get done when there is actual tyranny going on? So tyrants are out there. There are people in all the spheres of authority, all three of them, that go beyond what they, are, what they should be doing. But if we don't defeat the first tyrant of ourselves, of our own laziness, of our own pride, of our own sin, if we are not disciplining ourselves, then how will we ever defeat the outward tyrants if we aren't first defeating the inward tyrant? So that's what I want to say about that kind of fourth sphere of authority, which is self-government. So then moving on to the family. Now we're going to look at the family, the church, and the state, and what the Bible has to say about each of these three forms of government. So the family is the first, uh, not just the first that we're looking at, also the first established and the smallest. It's the smallest of the three in terms of size, and it's actually, in a way, the basis for the other two forms of government. Or at the very least, the family is the basis of the state, of the civil magistrate. Uh, and the, st the state structures, in many ways, is actually based off of the structure of the family, or in some instances, built off the structure of the state, or of the, of the church. There's actually a lot of, or at least one or two nations that, the way the nation's government is set up is very similar to the way Presbyterians set up their church hierarchy, which is something interesting. Um, but anyways, the state, we, or the church, sorry, the family, first one, the family, we want to look at first when it was established. And it was established all the way back in Genesis chapter 1 in the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28 say, I already read these two verses when I read the few after them a little bit ago. So 1, 27 and 28 say, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God established the family when God basically uh, did the first marriage between Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve were both created on day six is when God established the first form of government, the family. Because it wasn't a family when Cain and Abel and their siblings were born and they had kids. It was a family when Adam and Eve were first married and the kids just grew the family into more than just two people. And then another thing with this form of government, with the family, is that it is a picture of Christ and the church. Marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. We see Paul talking about this in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. So we're going to look there. Starting in verse 22, Paul says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, 
just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you is to love his wife, love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see that she respects her husband. So, marriage is, marriage of the family is a picture of the gospel. The husband playing the part of Christ, the wife playing the part of the church, and this, to use uh, some bigger terms, microcosm of the macrocosm. It's like the gospel is what the entire world is all about, and so God puts these little things that resemble the gospel all throughout the world, one of them being marriage, because it is representing the gospel in Christ and the church and the husband and the wife. And so marriage should be a visible picture on earth of the gospel. Uh, so what is, so that's um, a little bit more about the family form of government. What is the entrance into the family form of government? And each of these, I'm going to talk about entrance and exit and origin of these three forms of government. So when it comes to the family, entrance into this form of government, one is kind of simple. When you're born, you are under the family form of government with your parents. And then when you leave, when you exit that form of government to start your own family, to become married yourself, then you are starting another family form of government. So the entrance and exit is pretty easy with it. The entrance is either when you're born and then later on when you get married to another form of the family government. And then when it comes to those who bear responsibility in the families, the Bible has a lot to say about husbands and fathers bearing responsibility for their families. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, we see, I'm going to look at verses 4 through 7, and then jump down to verses, verses 20 and 21. So Deuteronomy chapter 6 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall ask of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. Then dropping down to verse 20. When your son asks you in time to come saying, what do the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments mean which the Lord our God commanded you that you shall say to your son, we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt and the Lord brought us from Egypt with a mighty hand. So this has to do with God commanding fathers to teach the Bible to their children in Old Testament Israel. And that wasn't just something for Old Testament Israel. That is applicable always for all fathers to bear the primary responsibility for teaching the Bible to their children. Actually, in the 1830s, when Sunday school started to become prominent, there were a lot of people that objected to Sunday school, not because they didn't want kids to learn the Bible, but because they thought that fathers would use Sunday school as an excuse for laziness and not teaching their kids the Bible anymore because they just said the teacher in Sunday school will do it. And as it kind of has turned out in the last almost 200 years, last 190 years, I think the people with those concerns were in a lot of ways right about it. So, but what that's saying from Deuteronomy is that fathers are to be teaching the, their children the Bible, that why, mothers should also be teaching their children the Bible, but God has given special responsibility to the father for the one having oversight in it. The father will answer to God on judgment day for how he taught the Bible to his children 
to a greater degree, then the mother will be responsible to God for this. And the Bible has, says a lot that teaching the Bible is an authoritative thing. Like my authority from here from the pulpit only comes from teaching the Bible, not from myself. The Bible also says that those who teach the Bible will be judged with greater strictness if they teach it falsely. We see that in James chapter 3, verse 1. And now James there is specifically talking about teachers in the church, but that also has a broader application for anyone teaching the Bible, which includes fathers teaching the Bible to their children, whether it be in family worship or in just time reading the Bible to their kids and stuff like that. And then going back to Ephesians chapter 5, in verse 26, Ephesians chapter 5 says that Christ cleansed the church by, Christ cleansed the church by the washing of water with the word of God, and thus husbands must be like Christ in his relationship with the church. Within, in that aspect, it has reference to the husband should lead family Bible studies and family worship at home, and the, the husband should be washing their wives spiritually with the word of God. Because Ephesians 5, that second half, is all about how the gospel, is, or the marriage is a picture of the gospel. So when it says that Christ washed the church with the water of the word of God, then husbands should also be leading their wives and their children in Bible studies and things like that. And then the, back to the picture of Christ and the church in Ephesians, it says that Christ is the head of the church, and therefore also husbands are the head of the wives. It says in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 23 and 24, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be subject to their husbands and everything. And now that's not saying that every woman has to be subject to every man. That's what people claim it says, and they're just lying because they want to make fun of the Bible and don't care what it actually says. It's saying to their own husbands. It's not saying that every husband has to love, every man has to love every woman in the special way Christ loved the church. Each man only has to love his wife that way, only that one person. And every woman doesn't have to submit to every man. She only has to submit to her husband. It is a special union with only those two to each other, not with men and women in general to each other. But this does teach us about this headship there, teaches about authority, that husbands, fathers have authority in the homes, not as tyrants. If he is being a tyrant with it, then he is sinning, and then the wife needs to bring it up with her local church for him to be, have church discipline practiced on him for the sin. But the husband should be leading his wife and children for their good, for the good of his wife and children. And everything so far we've looked at in Ephesians chapter 5 has supported this. But also, Adam named his wife in Genesis chapter 3, verse 20. Adam named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. And um, we will come back to that verse in particular here soon, so I'll explain in a bit more detail then. But naming something, it shows authority over that thing. Adam naming his wife Eve showed his authority over her, just like shortly before then he had named all the animals, showing his dominion over the animals, showing that he had God-given authority over all of the animals that God had created, which is referring back to my initial point in the beginning, saying that God has all authority, but he delegates authority to his creation. 
And even today, we still see that tradition that husbands rename their wives at marriage when the wife's last name changes to her husband's last name, which is why feminists get so mad and they try to hyphenate or keep their last names and all the other stupid stuff that they're doing with all of that. Because they know that that shows authority and they are intentionally trying to disrupt every form of government that God has created. Uh, and then looking at the last two things, I'm going to look at these two things which, with each of these three spheres of authority. I'm going to look at power and authority, and then I'm going to look at generosity, how that sphere of authority helps the poor or the oppressed or the downtrodden. So with the family, uh, power and authority, it is the power and authority to instruct the, their children. So, for example, with discipline, uh, Proverbs 13.22 says, He who holds back his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. And Proverbs 23.13-14 to 14 says, Do not withhold discipline from the child. Although you strike him with the rod, he will not die. You shall strike him with the rod and deliver his soul from Sheol. So what Proverbs is saying there is that discipline is important, that Husbands and wives have the responsibility to discipline their children. If they are not disciplining their children, if they're letting their children run wild, then they actually are showing they hate their children because they don't want them to grow up to be responsible adults. So that is a power granted to the family, the family form of government that is not granted to the church or the state. For example, the state is only allowed to practice discipline on any people within the state when a crime is broken, whereas there are sins that are not crimes that fall into the domain of the church and the family, not the state. Uh, and then when it comes to generosity with the family form of government, the family form of government should show generosity, in other words, should help the poor, the orphan, and the widow, as James refers to in the last verse or two of James chapter 1, to help the downtrodden, the oppressed. The family should do this financially and materially. That is, to give money to those who are in need, to give them things other than money, tangible assets that they might need to survive. Also, hospitality. If the poor, the downtrodden, the oppressed person is needing somewhere to live, then perhaps opening the house to them. Or even education, helping them learn skills or other things they need to either survive or to become in a better place than they are right now. So when it comes to helping the poor for the family form of government, it should be being generous, whether with money or with goods or services, showing hospitality to them, opening the home to them, and helping them to learn things they need to learn. So that's the family form of government. Now moving on to the second one, to the church form of government. Uh, this one is not just the second one in terms of the order I'm going in, it's the second one in terms of size of the three. The church is larger than the family, but typically it shouldn't be as large as the state, unless I guess you're in a city-state or something like that, maybe. But for most nations on the planet today, then the government will be larger than your average local church is. And by the way, when I'm saying church here, in some sense I'm referring to the local church, and by local church I mean each individual separate church. We're a different local church than the church across the street or uh, than uh, First Baptist Carmel up the road on Keystone. But there's another sense in which there's the universal church, which refers to all Christians on the planet who are alive and also all Christians who have ever been alive or ever will be alive. So now uh, 
I want, said I was going to talk about when each of these three forms of government was established. So with the church, there's kind of three different times you could say the church was established depending on what you are considering the church. So in one sense, the church was first established in Genesis chapter 3, verse 20. Remember a bit ago I said I would come back to this verse soon. So what happened in Genesis chapter 3, verse 20? In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that is one of the verses where God is basically pouring out the curse on Adam, Eve, and Satan in the form of a serpent for their sin. Adam and Eve had eaten the fruit. Now comes the fall. Now comes the curse on their sin. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God gives the first prophecy of the gospel in the Old Testament. There are all kinds of prophecies of the gospel in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53 perhaps being the greatest one. But the first one was Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. God said that the uh, serpent would be crushed by a descendant of the woman, which was a prophecy of Christ crushing Satan's head as Christ defeated Satan by dying on the cross and rising again. And so since God makes that prophecy there that it will be a child, a descendant of Eve, who will defeat Satan, who will bring the gospel, five verses later in Genesis chapter 3, verse 20, Adam, in faith of God's promise, names his wife Eve because she is the mother of all living. And that is why in Genesis chapter 3, verse 20, I think is when we see the first evidence in the entire Bible, the first evidence of someone's faith in God. The first act of faith in God we see performed is Adam naming his wife Eve because she's the mother of all living, which includes her descendant, Jesus Christ, who would crush the head of the serpent. So in that sense, I would say that the church is all believers who have ever lived, going all the way back to Adam and Eve and going all the way forward to the last person to get saved before Jesus comes back for his second coming. So in that sense, I say the church started with Adam and Eve. But in another sense, the church started, or should I say developed further, with the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel in the Old Testament and the church now are the same body. When we get to Romans 11 and the Roman study, we will see that, that Paul refers to this one olive tree, that believers are different branches of this olive tree, and the church in Israel are both part of this olive tree. It's not like God has Israel and God has the church, and there are these two separate peoples of God. It's God has one. God has one people of God. They're everyone who believes in him, whether an Israelite in the Old Testament or a Christian today, because we are all saved by grace through faith in Christ. In the Old Testament, they just had prophecies of Christ. They didn't know exactly what he looked like. A way I've heard it put is in the Old Testament, they were saved on credit. In the New Testament, we've been saved on debit. So in that sense, the church developed in a way you could almost say it started with Old Testament Israel. But then in another sense, the church developed on the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost is really what we could say that what we call the church now started because that is when we started referring to the church as the church. The day of Pentecost is when Jesus had 40 days earlier or something like that ascended to the right hand of God. 40 days before then was when he died on the cross. And the day of Pentecost was when Peter, as kind of the leader of the 12 disciples, preached a sermon to all these people from all over the Roman Empire who were believers in a Judaism who had come for the come to Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost, and then Peter preached the gospel, and 3,000 people got saved in one day. So a lot of people see that as when the church started, but 
in a very real sense, the church actually started in Genesis chapter 3, verse 20, when we see Adam's first act of faith. So all of these different things are ways the church has started and developed. And don't worry, out of the three, this is the one with the most complicated and the longest part of me saying how it started. The, when we get to the state, it won't be that long. Uh, so that's the origin of the church. And then how do we get to, uh, I said we were going to explain the entrance and exit from being underneath each of these forms of government. So with the church, entrance into the form of government of the church is when you join that local church, when, or when you get saved and you become under the authority of whatever local church you join. And then, uh, so exiting, would, exiting the authority of a local church would be a couple different things. One, if you left one local church to join a different one, when I moved from Missouri to Indiana, I left the local church I was at in Missouri, so I left being underneath their authority to come underneath the authority of the local church in Indiana that I joined. And then the other one would be church discipline. I don't know how if everyone here has ever done a study into church discipline, but there's several different steps of it, each step hoping the person will repent and it won't go any further. But if you get to the last step of church discipline, it is the pastors and elders at the church kicking that person out of the church because they have shown themselves to not actually be a believer in God, to have just falsely professed him. That is the other way someone could exit a church is through apostatizing, through leaving the faith. Uh, and then looking at uh, the leadership of the church, just like we looked at the leadership of the family, we're going to look at the leadership of the church, and the Bible talks about the pastors or the elders. Some people make a distinction. I think the Bible refers to them as the exact same thing. The pastors or the elders are the leadership of the church. And the deacons are also, in some sense, have authority in the church, but they are not the leaders of the church. The pastors and the elders are the leaders in the church. So what does the Bible say about pastors and elders? We see it say a little bit as it gives the qualifications for pastors and elders, and we see that in two places. One is 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, the first seven verses, gives the qualifications for pastors and elders. It says, It is a trustworthy saying, If any man aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a good thing. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but considerate, peaceable, free from the love of money, leading his own household well, having his children in submission with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to lead his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation of the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. And then the second, the second passage in the New Testament where Paul gives the qualifications of an elder is in Titus. Titus chapter 3, I'm sorry, Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. And that says, for this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is beyond reproach, the husband of one wife, having faithful children who are not accused of dissipation or rebellious. For the overseer must be beyond reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of dishonest gain. 
but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to reprove those who contradict. So that is on the leadership, those with authority in the church. And then another thing that the church has, the church form of government, has the keys of the kingdom, as Jesus calls them in Matthew chapter 16. The keys of the kingdom are given to the church. They are not given to the family or to the state. So if the family or the state ever tries to exercise the keys of the kingdom, then that person is overstepping his bounds because only the church, only the second of the three spheres of authority, only the second of the three forms of government God has established, have the keys of the kingdom. So let's look exactly at what Jesus describes them as. I'm going to look at Matthew chapter 16, verses 17 through 19, and then I'm going to look at another verse a couple chapters later. So Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says in verses 17 through 19, And Jesus answered and said to him, he's talking to Peter here, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then dropping to Matthew chapter 18, verse 18, Jesus says there, Truly I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So Jesus there is talking to his disciples, and he's talking to Peter, not Peter as a sole authority in and of himself, which is where the Catholic Church goes wrong. He's talking to Peter representing the foundation of the the apostles as the foundation of the gospel, which is something Paul talks about at the tail end of Ephesians chapter 2, that the foundation of the building, which is the church, are the apostles and prophets. Jesus is the cornerstone, and then all the rest of the Christians are bricks in the building. So Jesus is talking to Peter there as representative of all the apostles, and he talks about the keys of the kingdom, binding and loosing, not that the church has the authority to bind and loose on its own, but rather the church, by binding something, it recognizes it has already been bound in heaven, and when it looses something, it recognizes something that has already been loosed in heaven, and by binding and loosing there, it's referring to uh, Christians, to people's professions of faith. And so when Jesus talks about binding, he's saying that the church recognizes someone has professed the gospel, they seem to truly believe it, they seem to have truly repented of their sin, and as far as those who, to uh, quote from First Samuel again, as far as those who can only see with physical eyes and can't see the heart like God can, the church is recognizing this person to be a legitimate believer. That is when someone is binding. That is the power of the keys of the kingdom to recognize someone's salvation as, as far as they can tell, legitimate. Then loosing is referring to when the church sees someone who has professed Christ, has said that they are a Christian, but is showing by their life that they are not believing, either by outright apostasy and saying they don't believe anymore, or by sin that that person refuses to turn away from, and then the church practices church discipline and removes that person from membership, that is loosing that person, that is using the keys of the kingdom, using that power given to the church form of government 
to basically say this person is not a believer no matter what they may say contrary because they are not living the life the Bible has called them to live. So that is the power of the, uh, that is the authority of the keys of the kingdom given to the church. And then closely related to the loosing part of the keys of the kingdom is church discipline, which is correcting those who are going astray. Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 18, actually just the half dozen verses before that verse I just read was when Jesus was going through church discipline. And he's basically saying if a brother or sister is sinning, then another individual, just one individual alone, needs to come to that person and point out to them their sin and show them from the Bible where they are wrong and ask them to repent of this sin and turn back to God. And then if that person refuses to, if they say either no, this isn't a sin, or if they say I know it's a sin and I don't care, then that one individual comes back with one or two other people so that way there are now two or three total, referring back to the Old Testament, that everything must be established on the evidence of two or three witnesses, showing the continuity of the Old Testament to the new there. And then if that person still doesn't repent, still refuses to acknowledge it after two or three, then those two or three people get the elders and pastors of their church and talk to that person. And if that person still refuses to repent, then the elders bring it up to the church, remove that person from membership in the church, and say, as far as we can tell, this person, because of their unrepentant sin, whatever it may be, really the only sin you ever get kicked out of a church for is lack of repentance, not any particular sin. Then the elders would tell the church, this person is not a believer no matter what they may say because of their unrepentant sin, and we are removing them from membership. But to look at First and Second Corinthians, also, if that person later on decides to come back. Because even removing someone from the church, Paul describes it as handing them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that their spirit might be restored. It is the idea that hoping this person by being kicked out of the church will finally see their errors and will come back. And if they come back in true repentance, they should be welcomed and open arms as a member of the church again. But that church discipline there is another power or authority that the church has. And then the last one I want to look at is the preaching of the, preaching of the gospel, preaching of the word of God. The church has the authority of preaching the Bible because preaching the Bible is really where the, the power of the elders and pastors of the church comes from. Their authority doesn't come from themselves. Their authority doesn't come from how smart they are or anything like that. Their authority just comes from preaching the word of God, living lives that picture the Bible and all that they do, and... Um, living in conformity to the word of God. So then we're going to look at uh, the generosity. I said in each of these we're going to look at the generosity, in other words, of helping the poor and oppressed and downtrodden that each of these three spheres should do. And when it comes to the church, they should help the poor in many of the same ways the family should. The church should be willing to be financially supportive if the church is large enough, if it has enough members, if its members are generous enough. That the church has extra funds after paying for its expenses, then the church should use those to help others, either by directly helping those who are poor and oppressed. It also doesn't just mean giving out handouts to everyone who walks in saying they want money. They should be wise with it. There are certain instances where if someone is poor just because they're lazy, not because they are in a difficult situation that I would argue giving money to them is actually sinful because they need to be educated and disciplined, not just given a handout. Maybe educated and disciplined and given something to get their feet underneath them, but not just given a free handout. 
And that's something Paul Washer talks about in his Proverbs series as well. So the church should be helping the poor, the oppressed, the downtrodden, the orphan, and the widow financially and materially, just like the family is. Also in hospitality, if the church can house people, otherwise hospitality falls more under the jurisdiction of the family form of government. And then the church can also help with education, just like the family can, but the church can do more than an individual family can do. The church can start schools. The church can start private schools. The church can uh, do free education for poorer people who would not be able to afford the cost of a private school and things like that. The church can also start nonprofits. Nonprofit organizations run as Christian ministries should really be run under the authority of a local church, more as a ministry of that local church. So the local church can start nonprofits to help those who are poor and downtrodden uh, and things like that. And then lastly, we will be looking at the state or the civil magistrate or what people normally think of when you use the word government, although I am using, based on the Bible, the word government to refer to all three of these. So with the state, we're going to look once again at Romans chapter 13, and I'm going to read the first seven verses. So Romans 13, 1 through 7 says, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist have been appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of that authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword in vain. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of that wrath, but also because of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. So that's what Paul has to say in Romans about the government there. Now, when it comes to the origin, when the first government was established, it's a little bit debatable. I don't know if you have a clear-cut example in Scripture of the first government. I guess I would more just say, however early on it was in Genesis, that a group of people banded together, more than just a family, multiple families grouped together, and decided to have one group or one group of people to rule over them. Uh, perhaps we could say the origin of government was whenever the first king was established, which we know was sometime before Abraham, because Abraham in Genesis actually talks to multiple different kings. He talks to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, in Genesis chapter 12, verses 15 through 20. He talks to Melchizedek, the king of Salem, in Genesis chapter 14, verses 18 through 24. And he talks to Abimelech, the king of, I did not write which nation in my notes, in Genesis chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. And I think he talks to Abimelech even more in chapter 21. There are also other kings mentioned in uh, uh, Genesis. There are the multiple kings that went to war with each other from Sodom and Gomorrah and some of the surrounding city-states. And we also see Abraham talking to one of those kings 
after he went and captured those who were prisoners of war and brought them back into freedom in their own city. Um, so that is more on the origin of the state form of government. What do we see the entrance? How does someone enter underneath this form of government? With the family we saw, it is either being born, puts you under the family government that your parents started, or marrying yourself starts your own new form of family government. With the church, it was being a believer and becoming a part of a local church puts you underneath that form of government. And then with the state, it is uh, living within a nation means that you should obey that nation's laws insofar as the Bible commands that you should obey the nation's laws. In other words, if you're living in a nation, then you should obey the laws of that nation as far as the Bible tells you, which generally the Bible says the, the general idea is to obey the laws of the nation. But if the nation is sinning itself, then it becomes more complicated, and we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, also, this includes if you are a foreigner living in the nation. We can see that from Old Testament Israel. And it is especially true if you are a citizen of that nation when it comes to obeying the laws. Although I would add a caveat to this that an act of war, a spy doesn't have to say because of Romans 13, he has to perfectly be a model citizen of the nation he's living in. Because we see Israel in Numbers 21, they, if you remember, they send the 12 spies into the promised land before they go into war. And then that whole thing with them taking another 38 years before they get there. But those 12 spies weren't acting as model citizens of Jericho when they were hiding in Jericho for a few nights. So I just said a little caveat there for things like warfare when it comes to spydom, whatever the word is, because we see a precedent for that in Scripture. But the Bible does say that foreigners living in Old Testament Israel, which is our general rule of thumb for how we should model things after today, foreigners living in Old Testament Israel still had to obey Israel's laws and were condemned under the law if they taught any of the Israelites their pagan gods. It doesn't seem to say that they were condemned just for being pagans themselves. It seems to be only if they tried to teach the Israelites their pagan ways would they be condemned under the law. And then some of the passages we see with that are Exodus chapter 12, verses 47 through 49. So Exodus chapter 12, verses 47 through 49. We see there, it says, And the congregation of Israel are to celebrate this. This is talking about the various festivals that God established for them. It is to be eaten in a single house. You are not to bring forth any of the flesh outside of the house, nor are you to break any bone of it. Talking about the lamb or the goat that they would roast. And then it says in... Uh, Sorry, it says in verse uh, 48 there, But if a stranger sojourns with you and establishes the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, and then let him come near to celebrate it, and he shall be like a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person may eat of it. The same law shall apply to the native as to the stranger who sojourns among you. So that's talking about the same law for the Passover applying to the native-born Israelite, as to the foreigner who has come to live within the uh, nation's limits of Israel. And then flipping ahead to Leviticus chapter 24. Leviticus chapter 24 verses 19 through 22 read, If a man injures his neighbor, just as he has done, so it shall be done to him. 
fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Just as he has injured a man, so it shall be inflicted on him. Thus the one who kills an animal shall make it good, but the one who kills a man shall be put to death. There shall be one standard for you. It shall be for the stranger as well as the native, for I am the Lord your God. So that is about entrance into being in underneath the authority of the state sphere of authority. And then when it comes to exit, um, well, for one thing, you are, as we talked about last week or two weeks ago with Romans chapter 7, not being under the law once you are dead, then once you're dead, you're not, no longer under whatever nation's laws that you lived in because the nation can't have laws on a dead person. But other than that, um, expelled from a nation for treason then, or uh, moving, because after all, if you're expelled for treason, your citizenship is revoked, or moving to a different nation and renouncing your, for us, American citizenship, things like that would be exit from uh, being underneath a, nation, a state sovereignty. And then when we look at the power and the authority, we looked at the power and authority the family has, we looked at the power and authority that the church has, and now we're looking at the power and the authority that the state has. And first and foremost, I want to say that the government, the American government, the Canadian government, the Mexican government, the government of every nation on the planet, the civil magistrate's authority is not unlimited. There are some people who apparently aren't very good at reading the Bible that try to say the Bible puts no limits whatsoever on the state's authority, and that is completely a lie. The Bible has a lot to say on that because governments today should be modeled after what we see in the Old Testament law, the case laws that we see in books like Deuteronomy. So the government is limited in its size and power by the Old Testament law. Um, for example, if the, if the government of Israel, if Old Testament Israel's government couldn't do something, then our government today can't do that same thing. It would be sinful for our government today to do what it would be sinful for the Old Testament Israel's government to do. And that's not a wooden, that's not a strict rule. It has to do more with looking at the spirit of the Old Testament law and applying it today. For example, with the Old Testament law, there was a law against putting par uh, there was a law about putting what they called parapets on your roof. Basically what it meant is you had to put a fence around your roof. The reason for that was where they lived, everyone had flat roofs. It's 3,000 years ago, so there's no AC. So to not get so hot, people would go up on the roof and would hang out on the roof and talk to each other on the roof. I guess it's kind of like people today that go out on the porch and talk, but I think that's more of a southern thing than this far north that people still go out on the porch and talk today. So it's kind of that same idea. So there was a law about having a fence around your roof. That way, when you and your friends are out on the roof of your house, if your friend falls, that, that way your friend doesn't fall off. If your friend fell off because you didn't have a roof around your house, you were responsible for manslaughter for not having a roof. Also, at the same time, Old Testament Israel didn't have police going around giving people tickets for not having a roof or, or not having a fence around their roof. You didn't have to have one. It was a sin if you didn't. It wasn't a crime. And then if someone died because you didn't have one, then you would be charged with a crime. A similar thing being applied today would be if you have an in-ground swimming pool in your backyard, you should probably either have a fence around your whole yard, or if you don't have that, have a fence around the pool itself. That way your neighbor's kid or your neighbor's dog or something doesn't fall into your in-ground swimming pool and drown. That would be how we would take something 
that was applied specifically for Old Testament Israel and apply the spirit of the law today. Uh, that's what people refer to when they talk about the case laws of the Old Testament, applying how these laws were uh, applied in specific cases in the Old Testament to 21st century America or 21st century whatever nation you might happen to live in. I mean, we all live in America, but any nation on the planet today. Um, and then another power that the state has that the other two forms of government don't have is to is the punishment of criminals. The church should not punish criminals. If a church finds out that someone is doing something that is both a sin and a crime, then the church takes care of the element of it that's a sin and it hands that person over to the state for the state to take care of the part where it's a crime. Because the state doesn't take care of sins and the church doesn't take care of crimes. Each one of them acts in accord with what sphere of government God has given them. So as it says in Romans chapter 13, verse 4, the state is the one who executes wrath on the wrongdoer. He, the state executes wrath on the person who practices evil. And um, this is actually how the state helps the poor and the oppressed and the downtrodden. If someone has been sinned against in a way that is breaking a crime, like by theft, then the state punishes the person who committed the crime. And as far as the Bible is concerned, this is the only way that the state helps those who are poor and oppressed. The state doesn't give material help to the poor other than forcing the person who stole from him or her to return what they stole with interest and thus making restitution between the two parties. And that's when you look at the Old Testament law, if someone steals from you, then that person has to pay it back with 20% interest, actually sometimes more than 20%, depending on the specific scenario. What do we have today? If someone steals something from me today and then say they steal my car and they wreck the car, well, I just hope my insurance company gives me a decent amount of, gives me a decent check for it and doesn't increase my rates too much for getting my car stolen. Pretty horrible. Look at Old Testament Israel. Someone steals my car. Uh, my car's pretty old. Let's say my car's worth $4,000. Then that person has to give me $4,000 plus 20% interest so they'd have to give me $4,800 if they stole my car. I think that's a little bit better than a six-month-long battle with the insurance company and then higher rates at the end of it when I finally get a new car. Just saying, if people try to say the Old Testament law is so bad, you compare it to similar laws today and every time it comes out better. But basically, that's just an example of what the Bible has to say is the way that the state helps the poor and oppressed. It helps the poor and oppressed by executing judgment when a law is broken that harms them. The state doesn't give money to the poor. The state doesn't provide food to the poor. The state doesn't provide free or cheap housing to the poor. All of those things fall under the purview of the family and the church. Those are the ways the family and the church shows generosity to the poor and oppressed. The state shows generosity to the poor and the oppressed by executing wrath on criminals who break laws. So that way, each one of these spheres is operating in its certain order that God has established for it to operate. None of them are going against God's order. And this is why I can, without reservation, say that socialism is sinful. It is evil. It is a violation of the law of God. Socialism and communism, including everyone in America who thinks they're a good idea, are sinning when they say those things. They are sinning against God. And like I said, this doesn't mean that we don't help the poor and oppressed. People like to say, if you're against socialism, then you think the poor shouldn't get any help. No. I just recognize the fact the Bible says the government, the state, the civil magistrate should not help the poor and oppressed. It should be the church. It should be us as individual families 
and as individuals and as individual families giving money to help those who are in need, which, not to boast, but I've done that this year. I've given money to a friend of mine who basically was had to divorce her abusive husband who basically took all the money when he left. I gave her some money to help her take care of her kids. I'm sure that local churches in the area did the same thing, and I'm, I know I wasn't the only person who helped her financially. And I would still say the church, the, the, sorry, the state, the, what we think of when we hear the term government, should not help her financially in her situation. It should be what has been happening, local churches, individuals, families helping her. So it's not that the poor and the oppressed don't get help. They don't get, it's not that they don't get material help. It's not that they don't get financial help. It's which of these three spheres of authority, which of these three spheres of sovereignty, which of these three forms of government is the one who helps the poor person? It's the family and the church. It's not the government. The government only helps if the reason they're poor is someone took advantage of them in a way that violated the law. Then the government should, under the evidence of two or three lines of witness, execute judgment on that person in accordance with the crime, but the government shouldn't give them a free handout unless it's to tell the person who stole from them they have to give the money back with interest. And even then, the money is not coming from the government. It's coming from the one who stole from them. So that's why we say that the state is the minister of the sword because it's the one executing wrath, and the sword has specific reference to not just punishment in general, but actually capital punishment and things that deserve capital punishment like murder, the punishment for murder should be capital punishment, as God says in the passage I just read from Leviticus, or in Genesis 9, and in other passages. The church is the minister of mercy, because the church is the one with the keys of the kingdom. The church is the one that has the gospel preached every Sunday. The church is the one training individual Christians to go preach the gospel on their own. So the state, what we think of when we normally hear the term government, is the minister of wrath, is the minister of the sword, the church is the minister of mercy. The church is the minister of grace. And so the Bible tells us to help the poor, to help the widow and the orphan, but it tells us how to do so. As I just said, it tells us which spheres of authority are the ones who are to do that. And then also the Bible tells us when it comes to any of the spheres of authority, but especially when it comes to the state, what to do when it comes to rebellion. Some people would say you should never rebel against the state. Well, then they have an issue with the War of Independence. Not the Revolutionary War, by the way. That's an inappropriate term for it. It's the War of Independence. Or as the British called it, the Presbyterian Revolt, because so many people leading the charge in the War for Independence were Presbyterian ministers that the British called it the Presbyterian Revolt. I just love to talk about that. They were called the Black Robe Brigade because they were all wearing the black robes they preached in. But the Bible does talk about rebellion, but it gives certain parameters for it. If the government, if the state, commands that which God prohibits or prohibits that which God commands, then we must rebel. And I know that's fancy terminology. What that basically means is if the government says you have to do this, but the Bible says doing that is sinful, then you have to rebel. If the government says you can't do this, but the Bible says not doing that is sinful, you have to rebel. An example of this would be if the government says that we can't meet for church because of something that has a 99.8% survival rate, then we are commanded by scripture to rebel because the government is prohibiting that which God has commanded. Uh, another example is with in the book of Daniel with the three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were commanded to worship this, uh, to worship this pagan stone statue of a fake god or whatever it was, and they refused to and they ended up facing the penalty for it, but God preserved them through it. 
Or we see in the book of Acts, the apostles being told, if you preach any more this gospel, if you preach any more the name of Jesus, then basically we're going to throw you in prison and we're going to kill you. And they said it's better to obey God than to obey man and continued preaching the gospel. And then another time when any of the three spheres of sovereignty, family, church, or state, calls for rebellion would be if they are going beyond the power given to it by God. As it relates to the state, um, well, any of them, this should be done in the order the Bible tells us to. In the case of the state, this isn't just you don't like something the government says, so you're going to twist the Bible verse to say it's wrong and then rebel. That's not what it is. It's not, you know, basically anarchy like that could turn into. The Bible gives us this idea of something called the doctrine of the lesser magistrate. The Bible and church history teaches us about this, which is basically if a higher person, a higher magistrate, basically someone with political power, if a higher magistrate commands something that is wrong to be done, then a lower magistrate should rebel against that and say, no, we're not going to do that here because that's evil. This is what happened when you had various mayors or governors rebel against the Fugitive Slave Act back 150, 200 years ago when it was said, if you catch a free slave, you have to return him back. And certain mayors or governors or uh, judges, county commissioners said, no, in my jurisdiction, if that happens, I'm not going to prosecute someone who helps that slave escape to freedom because the person is wrong for doing that. That is an example in American history of when the doctrine of the lesser magistrate has been practiced. And I bring that up to say, rebellion against a wrongful, sinful, errant, state should not just be done willy-nilly. It shouldn't just be done freely like some sort of anarchy, but it should be done under a lesser magistrate who is leading the charge and saying what the higher magistrate is doing is wrong. And there are other examples throughout history I could give of that lesser magistrate idea, but it's already 1216, so I think I need to wrap up. Uh, so in conclusion, I first want to say don't think this is getting super political. This isn't like siding with one political side over the other, because I think both of the major parties in America go against a lot of what I just said. And then I want to say God has established these various forms of government, the family, the church, and the state. And so we shouldn't just think of the state as the only form of government. We should think of the family as one form of government, the church as another form of government, and the state as the third form of government each with their various areas of authority and power, each with their various spheres of sovereignty, and each one with their various ways that they should be showing generosity and helping those who are in difficult situations. So obey God by obeying the governments he has established when they are operating in their proper order and when they are in subjection to God. And then I want to close with two quotes. One of them was by a man that actually wasn't a Christian, but it's still a good quote, Thomas Jefferson. He said, when tyranny becomes law, rebellion becomes duty. And then John Knox, one of the people who led the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago, John Knox said, resistance to tyranny is obedience to God. So to repeat those two quotes, when tyranny becomes law, rebellion becomes duty, and resistance to tyranny is obedience to God. So with that, I want to pray and close us out. God, thank you for today. Thank you for how you have blessed us. Help us to honor you with our time, to love you and to serve you. Help us to honor you with the rest of our Sunday and to honor you when it comes to submission to all of the forms of government that you have established in your word. In your name we pray. Amen. More than silver or 
and say.